Hi, it's Katerina Fake of YesVC, and this is Ingenious. When I launched this podcast, Conversations with Brave and Brilliant People, this guest was at the top of my list. Join me, please, in welcoming to the stage Maria Ressa, a Nobel laureate, a prize-winning journalist. Maria Ressa, co-founder of Rappler, the digital news startup in the Philippines, and author of How to Stand Up to a Dictator, her memoir about confronting former President Rodrigo Duterte, and how his authoritarian regime weaponized social media to smother a free press and destroy democracy. Maria is one of my heroes, and I don't use that term lightly. I stand before you a representative of every journalist around the world who is forced to sacrifice so much to hold the line, to stay true to our values and mission, to bring you the truth and hold power to account. Maria shared her Nobel Prize with Russian journalist Dmitry Muratov in 2021 for their efforts to safeguard freedom of expression, a precondition for democracy and lasting peace. For the podcast, Maria and I met at Columbia University, where she's part of a new Institute for Global Policy at Columbia School of International and Public Affairs, and where she's now focused on the role of AI in democracy. Here she is on a panel to launch the Institute. Why are we not putting guardrails on the technology that is insidiously manipulating our emotions to change the way we see the world and ultimately the way we act? Sorry. Anger. No, no, good. Anger, anger. The Institute focuses on bridging the gap between scholars and practitioners and is headed by Secretary Hillary Rodham Clinton. One focal point will be democratic societies in the age of rapidly evolving AI. Clearly, this is a topic that certainly keeps me up at nights because the world is racing headfirst into a new era that will affect how we live, how we work, literally how we think and how we relate to each other. These are hugely Uh, important issues I'll discuss with Maria Ressa. But first, some background. It's been several years since I first met Maria back in 2020 at the screening of a documentary about her called A Thousand Cuts, directed by the phenomenal Ramona Diaz. Mr. President, is it important that people be afraid of you? Fear. A Thousand Cuts chronicles Rappler's investigation into thousands of murders sanctioned by the Duterte government of people suspected of using or selling drugs. And it follows Maria and her team's fearless defense of the truth. If you haven't seen it, you should. I will kill you. During some downtime together in Park City, Maria and I discovered we both grew up in New Jersey and shared personal stories and a few laughs, including both of our struggles with eczema. Yes, yes, I do. Because, like, I believe that this is a common Filipino thing. I have it all over. I have a new face. I have a new cure, yes. Really? Okay. We'll see if it works. I'll send it to you. (laughs) Thank you. So when I wrote Maria to ask for an interview, knowing she's always deluged with requests, my email header was eczema solutions, trying to be creative. But it might have gotten sorted into the spam folder. I didn't get a reply for months. Little did I know. I just wanted to tell you, my only apology for not, for not being able to respond is, I have over a million in that email. <laughs> a million. So oh it's just, like, insane. I'm like, sure. And then Maria showed me her phone. Over a million unopened emails. I didn't even know that was possible. It's a thousand emails a day, roughly. And we're trying to come up with a way for me to 
to actually organize so I can manage because I didn't see Bono's emails three times. I didn't see the Pope. Like when you miss emails like this, this is not what you want, right? I can't believe I'm sitting here talking to you. Anyway. And with over a million emails, she's not making much progress with her eczema either. They always say like, you know, don't get stressed and get sleep. Neither of which I do, you know? It's like, well, (laughs) I guess we'll give up on this, right? Stress seems like a way of life for Maria Ressa. A passing court acquits Nobel Peace Prize laureate and Rappler Chief Executive Officer Maria Ressa and Rappler Holdings Corporation, or RHC, of tax evasion charges. Just two weeks ago, Maria was cleared of tax evasion charges, ending an almost five-year battle. It's just one of a raft of other legal challenges trying to debilitate Rappler. She still has three more cases pending. Maria says it's like living on quicksand. But today, it feels like we're a world away here at Columbia. When I arrived for the interview, she hadn't eaten all day. So we went to grab a few bento boxes in the cafeteria. Sorry, it's a very crowded elevator. (laughs) And in the elevator and hallways, you can see it in the students' eyes. That's Maria Ressa. It's really her. No, I met you. I was working with Anya. Oh, right. Oh, my gosh. That's where. Yeah, nice to see you again. Maria is already a familiar face here at Columbia. To announce her appointment at the Institute for Global Policy, Maria gave the commencement address in May for the School of International and Public Affairs. Whatever you are most afraid of, imagine it. Touch it. Hold it. Embrace it then rob it of its power. Because once you do that, nothing can stop you. That was one of countless speeches she's given to students around the world. Maria is a distinguished fellow here at Columbia for the next month until she returns as a professor of practice in the fall of 2024. Wow. What views. Look at this. Look, you can see the bridge. Maria is setting up her brand new office with a view of the George Washington Bridge spanning the Hudson. But fellow journalists back in Manila are never far from her mind. On Sunday, I went to the memorial service of Percy Mabasa. Uh, He was killed on October 3rd last year, waiting in his car to go inside a gated compound in Metro Manila. He's probably the only one. Most of the killings of journalists happened in the provinces. And so we, we went. And there's no justice yet. Percy Mabasa was a news radio host. Maria says he's the second journalist to be killed under the new administration of President Ferdinand Marcos Jr. When Maria received her Nobel Prize in 2021, she paid tribute to 23 other journalists and 66 lawyers who were killed while Rodrigo Duterte was president, all defending democracy against autocracy. The Philippines, on its surface, is a democracy, is a robust democracy, and Because the administration tried to harass, intimidate, and scare journalists and the people, Mm -hmm. right? Killing, I mean, you know, you're talking by 2016, an average of 33 dead bodies a night in this brutal drug war. That's the police's own numbers, right? The police's numbers. That's the police's own numbers. The number of people killed in the brutal drug war is the first casualty in the battle for facts, right? right? Because they, the government tried to intimidate you, and they rolled numbers back in front of us. Mm-hmm. So the role mm-hmm. of a news organization is to hold the line, right? And you can see we debated this. Death toll was the first one. So what death toll do we use? 
head of the Commission on Human Rights, by the end of 2018, set the number of people killed at nearly 27,000. 27,000 versus the government at that point had rolled it back to 2,000, right? It's like, these are insane numbers, and how do you choose? And it was the poor who, who were getting killed. So what's the role mm-hmm. of journalism? Mm-hmm. In an authoritarian state. To hold the line, yeah. right? And, yeah. and actually, I think perhaps the most dangerous is a democracy turning into an authoritarian state. Maria calls herself a boundary spanner. She was born in the Philippines, moved to New Jersey with her family at age 10, and then got her degree from Princeton. She returned to the Philippines on a Fulbright before launching an almost 40-year career in journalism from CNN to Rappler. Maria says her ability to cross-culturally link external and internal systems is probably the reason she's endured, surviving arrest, prosecution, financial peril, and more. Well, what are our constitutional rights? Philippine and American constitutions are near identical. The Philippines is patterned after the U.S. Constitution. In fact, its very first one had to be approved by an American president. Mm. The joke, the Philippines spent 300 years in a convent and 50 years in Hollywood. (laughs) 300 years under Spain colonial rule, 50 years under American. And we take Hollywood seriously, you know. (laughs) But that was part of why I wanted to go back to the Philippines, because I I don't really, like, irony and satire, I don't really like that. (laughs) That's where I'm not American. And I was like, that person's being mean. (laughs) And they were like, no, it's satirical. I was like, okay, fine. Mm -hmm. So after I graduated, I went to the Philippines. And then I landed and I realized, oh, oh, I'm not quite Filipino. Maybe I am American, (laughs) you know. It's funny because I had that dislocation when my family moved here. And then it's a completely new language, like not just the language itself, but the cultural language. So when I was younger, it was really about sitting back and watching and not having any pressure to really do anything, which was when I was growing up, I was more of an introvert in in New Jersey. And I I remember one of my professors in school actually saying, you know, Maria can speak more because part of it is if I don't know, I'm going to learn and I'm going to stay quiet while I'm learning. I think the difference now is we know tech, (laughs) we build tech. Mm -hmm. And so, Mm -hmm. and if I feel like we're behind in the public discussion, then I get you know, then I speak. For me, I'm much more focused on safety, harm, accountability, and responsibility, right? At Columbia, Maria will be leading several projects about online harassment, coded biases and algorithms, and the effects of AI on human rights around the globe, as she expressed at this panel for the opening summit. Think about it like this, and so lose the word AI and think COVID vaccine. We needed a COVID vaccine right away. We were all running for it, but we didn't let loose the COVID vaccine in the public until it was tested, even though it was fast. What we've seen in terms of AI, and the first time it was really rolled out was social media and technology that connects us. I became a journalist because information is power, and that wasn't really factored into the equation of social media at that point in time. And what we have seen since then is tremendous harm to society that has led to the breaking up of the public sphere, lies turned into facts, and facts turned into lies. That has affected every part of society. So the question is, who was responsible? Who is accountable? 
What about the harms that our younger generation is facing? Here's the thing with the next generation AI, right? with large language models, so many unanswered questions in terms of, you know, can it just suck up everything we are, everything we know? Can it just suck all of that up and then create something and not give anything back? Two, what is the damage of whatever that is? Because you hear, it's fantastic to hear, we want regulation, but then to also to scare you into saying, but we must get ahead of China. China, by the way, has restrictions on it. Then Maria and I continued this conversation one-on-one. I'm an investor and a product developer. I work in AI and at the companies building these technologies. But I do think the generative AI took everybody by like surprise. And we have been just scrambling to understand the implications of it, find if there are positive uses, you know, what they are. Yeah. I'm one of those people that also believes that AI should not have been called AI, that intelligence. It's neither artificial nor intelligence. Exactly. <laughs> but my, my opinion is that it's been misnamed, that it's some kind of, it's a predictive technology. It's based on, you know, data that's been input that has been generated, obviously, by, by humans for the most part. And intelligence implies something that it just doesn't have. You know, intelligence is so much more than just facts and knowledge, what we write, stringing words together, recompiling images. A lot of it is about us sitting here. And part of the reason that we were doing this podcast in person is that we feel that there's so much more that gets communicated when you're sitting in a room with somebody. Intelligence includes the interactions between people, the interactions between people in their environment. You know, you understand things when you're out in the world. That is actually what I believe intelligence is, not this very limited capacity that the machines have. Rappler just released its own AI guidelines, including fully disclosing when content has been produced using AI. Now Maria's meeting directly with engineers and developers, including at OpenAI, the company behind ChatGPT. Our team is actually just came back from OpenAI because we partner with every single one of these yes. um, these yeah. tech companies, right? Yeah. And that's the reason why I feel like uh, on very solid ground, because if you go on Rappler now, in July, we rolled out generative AI, uh, but we constricted it. We fed it our data and then constricted it to the story page. It just um, summarizes in three bullet points. And then on the back end is where we use it to make our folks more efficient, right? But it's very hard to know what a young reporter needs to do that they learn by repetition, mm-hmm. right? This yeah. is your brain, your, you know, so I worry about things like this. But mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. anyway, the open AI, they asked for how to use large language models to help in a, cons- in a consultation with the public. So we came up with like a multi-pronged proposal that were simultaneous that are checks and balances. Coming, coming, coming. Come on in. Um, And we're interrupted by a few of her colleagues. Maria is being asked to join them for a lecture that Hillary Clinton is about to give. And when it ends a few hours later, a small group of students gather with Maria and me across the hall. One has an armful of how to stand up to a dictator, hoping Maria will sign a few books. And another brings a personal message from her family. My mom tells me to say that she loves you. Where are you from in the States? I'm from Illinois, a very oh. small town by Wisconsin. 
So in this small gathering in a conference room, Maria tells us more about the next phase of her work and why she's decided to make a commitment to education. So I think this time period is, um, we haven't lived through anything like this, not in our lifetime. So by February next year, this, this will be 38 years I've been a journalist, and everything is being turned upside down. It's like we're living on quicksand. And all your different experiences, even your majors, are now putting different verticals together, which is actually what we need to try to create what the new world is going to be. Rappler is ongoing. I think what Rappler gives me is it's our own real-life laboratory because you can't make decisions if you don't have the data, if you don't see how the public is being affected by the tech that connects us but manipulates us. And now I want some, a little bit of time to, I've written a book, but I need, I want to work with other people who are looking for immediate, short and medium term solutions and driven by the optimism and idealism of youth. <laughs> Which is so completely necessary, right? Because if you're, you're in a room full of people who all can make decisions, they're all really smart. But if they're all cynical, the decisions will be different. So, yeah, it's this intersection of really smart people, the idealism, optimism, and the ability to hopefully come up with solutions. And I think the one that will yield the most in the short term is an engineering solution. Because I don't think it is a speech or yes. a human issue. Yes. This is a design of engineering. Yes. This so. is actually one thing that Maria and I were talking about earlier is that actually I'm very hands-on. I actually am an investor and an entrepreneur. And so I, and I continue to build products and I sit on a product council for an AI company as well. And I have a, um, I have a reputation in the field as being the person who is like a, a person who represents humanity in technology. I had a podcast prior to this one called Should This Exist, which, you know, frankly, let's be honest, a lot of people in the Valley were not asking that question. And so I'm just a very uh, hands-on person in that I am still deep in the product world. So I do think that this um, approach is the right approach and bringing more engineering in certainly I think is uh, one of the solutions. So I would love to hear all of you talk a little bit about you know the opportunity here to learn from Maria. Well, can I ask, like, I'm a person who cares deeply about supporting journalism and democratic, supporting our democracies, and as a person who wants to enter into this field, I'm wondering, where can I have the most impact? Is it by going to an AI company, to a technology company? Is it working in government? Is it working in private companies? Kind of as a person who wants to enter into this career, what direction should I go in? What part is the field interests you the most? Um, supporting good journalism and making sure that people receive good quality information. Mm, good, yes. I, there, look at the smile on Maria's face. <laughs> I mean, right now the journalists are the, we're powerless in terms of distribution. The tech determines the distribution right now, unless you're, even the Washington Post, if you look at the Washington Post, in the last year they lost $250 million. Right, so the business model of journalism is dead because micro-targeting is significantly brings better ROIs than media advertising. But the relationship with your community, who are you doing the journalism for, and then how does it reach them? In any of these places, I guess, if what they all have in common would be how much of an emphasis do you want? A tech company would probably have more emphasis on profit. 
Government is public service, hopefully, but then bureaucratic. Journalism is a dying industry, right at the point when we must turn it around. I know that doesn't help you that much, right? Because it's like creative destruction right now. I don't know how it'll turn out. I don't think we But the world needs you in any of those. I come from working in those tech companies. I work with a lot of cultural organizations and nonprofits. Actually, in some ways, without people like us in this room, in the tech world, it will run off the rails completely. So I do think that the world is actually lacking more people like us inside the tech industry. So that's that's another thing to consider. I just downplayed journalism, didn't I? It's incredibly important. <laughs> but the reality is that we don't have that much power. So my team, this is why I like rappers, we continue on accountability investigative journalism, but then we're building tech and then we're connecting to try to solve the problem where it begins, which is the design of the distribution of the journalism. There's many problems to be solved. Can we take a picture with all of you together? Sure. And as the students leave, I am grateful to have a few final moments alone with Maria at the end of our visit. So who are the people in your life that you keep near to you to give you strength? Oh my gosh, well, my co-founders. Right? Like, this isn't just me or Rappler collectively. The four of us, literally, I think our, our superpower is that when we come under attack, we now have a workflow. We will run in four different directions simultaneously because we can read each other's minds and, and we have the courage to stand up to it. So there's never a sense. I think the hardest part when you come under attack is a sense is the possibility of betrayal. It's a close-knit group of women who hold her up and keep her close. The Menangs at Rappler, which means older sisters. Tell me their names. So I think the core for me are my co-founders, Glenda Gloria, Chai Hofilenya, Beth Frondoso, myself, my family, right? These are, and then my family, and my sisters just left. You would have met them. So they all Over just the dispersed. Year. Yeah, they, because I turned 60. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so they came. Are they still in New Jersey? No, my sister, my youngest sister is in L.A. They just flew out this morning. My other sister's in Florida, who's two years younger than I am. And my sister Michelle is in the Philippines, but she left. She was going to. So it's still another four, another group of four. Yeah. Are you the oldest? I am the eldest. The Manang. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, super. But that's, you know, the trust. That's the part that's hardest to find in any organization. I'm sure you know this. Oh, I know. Right? I know. Especially when you throw money into the mix. When you're running a business, when you're dealing with other people who are running businesses, and when you're dealing with a government that incentivizes lies, mm-hmm. right? So we dealt with all of that, and I think we did that because of trust. That's the biggest commodity. So you're unbelievably resilient. You seem very calm, <laughs> and you deliver messages of love. <laughs> Isn't it? I know, but I mean, what's the source? I've seen the worst. I've covered, like, literally disaster areas where no one has anything, and then the, the family will give you the water, the only clean glass of water. There was a five-year period, because we have ty- an average of 20 typhoons every year in the Philippines. I went to the same place that gets hit by a typhoon every year, and this older gentleman whose house gets torn down every year. And I just wanted to see, that's resilience, right? 
So I've seen the best and the worst. I've seen areas in, in Indonesia where the headhunters of Borneo were literally, I walked into a field and kids were playing soccer, except they were using, uh, the ball was ahead of an old man. So this was the ethnic violence right after Suharto left, right, 1998. And yet, despite the violence, despite the conflict, there will always be someone good that will galvanize a community to come together. I think the other part is just, I am, I believe in the goodness of human nature. Really, I've always been an optimist and it's never let me down. And the, the part that I maintain, I'm old now. <laughs> I think I not, a, have no regrets because you. I aimed to live a life of no regrets, which means every critical decision you weigh and you make the right call. And I'm still idealistic. That's great. Tell me the best day of work. Oh, my gosh. So many. I mean, there's so many. There's so many little, little things like getting the interviews or getting an exclusive, right? But nothing will beat the Nobel. I mean, the night this was announced, who would have thought? My team knew that I had been nominated, but I thought it would be like Reporters Without Borders. I thought it would be a group of journalists. But that night was the end of putting in candidates for elections. That was the closing night. And yeah. so I was on a, a webinar with the head of an Indonesian news group, a Malaysian news group that had just dealt with, with lawsuits again. Uh, and then I was there for the Philippines. Hello. Am I talking to Maria Ressa? You are, yes. And I'm calling you on behalf of the Norwegian Nobel Committee. And it's a great pleasure for me, Maria, to inform you that you are awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for 2021 for your courageous fight oh for God. freedom of expression in the Philippines. But I would be delighted to hear your immediate spontaneous reaction to this news. I, I, I'm speechless. I'm actually live with on another event, but my God, thank you. Oh my gosh, this, thank you so very much. Are you back with us, Maria? Are you, are you, could this be your acceptance speech or something? <laughs> I think it's a recognition of how tough it is. See, I don't cry. Okay, wait, wait. Two After I got it, and then I messaged the Manangs that this isn't mine, this is Rappler's. Right? Like, once I did that, all of a sudden, every single device on my desk blew up. Like, wow. And I was like, where do I go? You know, which one do I answer? And then, and then the team came together around 8 o'clock. And that team call was incredible because everyone was crying. <laughs> because that was the time when you can relax. You know, for me, I was like, wait a second, wait a second, don't relax yet, because I'm worried if you relax. I was like, don't relax. I mean, this could mean that there'll be more attacks. Well, shut us down. And then Glenda just messaged me to say, shut up and let everyone relax. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. because that was, um, you look foolish if you're doing the right thing when everyone around you is doing the wrong thing. And that's sometimes a lesson the Philippines can give, right? Because when I first came there in 1986, they said, if you're not corrupt, you're not going to succeed. 
okay, well, we're not corrupt. We've succeeded. We did the right thing, and we're still here. So it, that, the Nobel was really like, it was a, it proved that doing the right thing is the right thing. The day after my interview with Maria Ressa, the 2023 Nobel Peace Prize was announced. It was awarded to Nargis Mohammadi for her fight against the oppression of women in Iran. She received the news in prison, where she is now serving up to a dozen years. Mohammadi was quoted as saying, Women will not give up. We are fueled by a will to survive, whether we are inside prison or outside. Maria, we are grateful you are among those who are safely on the outside for your steadfast efforts in holding the line and for this next phase of your leadership in education. And so I leave you with these closing words from Maria's commencement address, delivered to the 2023 graduates of the School of International and Public Affairs. We are living in science fiction times. And our fate is in your hands. I think I shouldn't say congratulations. I should say welcome to the battlefield. Sleep well tonight. <laughs> because your dreams, you have to dream of a better future. It must get better, right? Despite the bleak battle you are entering, Oh man, we can't give up. And you are coming into the fray. So dream of a better future. Then when you wake up tomorrow, go and make it happen. Thank you to Columbia University's Institute of Global Policy for welcoming us and to the indomitable Maria Ressa. I'm Katerina Fake of YesVC, and this is Ingenious. You can also find me on LinkedIn. We've created an ingenious newsletter on Substack with bonus content and reading around each episode. Both links are in our show bio and description of this episode. Thank you for listening.